While we're waiting for all of Europe to safely reopen, we can find traces of the old world in the new, like Solvang in California. It's just so charming because you're going through one, you know, beachside city after the next, and it's that California laid-back feel, and then boom, you're in Europe. Travel writer Cheney Kwok hoped to see the northern lights on a winter cruise in Norway. Cruises really prepare you for the northern lights experience because a lot of cruising is about waiting. He tells us how he survived the ship's near-tragic encounter with a freak winter storm. Iceland gives you access to the raw drama of the Arctic on terra firma, especially when you venture away from Reykjavik. You've left the city, you've maybe just come from the Apple store, and then half an hour, you're on the moon in a black sand desert. Iceland's backcountry, the Viking Sky incident, and finding Europe in America. It's all ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. TV travel presenter Samantha Brown takes your emails at radio at ricksteves.com as we look for Europe in North America. Travel writer Cheney Kwok tells us how the Norwegian cruise ship he was on met a freak winter cyclone that came close to turning into a major disaster. And we're reminded what a fierce beauty camping out in Iceland can be, coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Who says you have to actually go to Europe to get a taste of the old world? After all, many American and Canadian cities and towns were settled by European immigrants. Sometimes they tried to recreate a bit of what they knew from the old country. So even if we can't go to Europe, we can discover a bit of it right here in our hemisphere. Samantha Brown hosts the public television travel series Places to Love, where she films from destinations both around the world and closer to home. She joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to look at some of her favorite places to find a bit of Europe in America. Samantha, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Rick. Boy, you know, all I do is go to Europe again and again and again, but I realize there's a lot of Europe hiding out here in the United States. You know, during COVID lockdown times, uh, we can't travel overseas like we'd like to, but we can find little knockoffs here in the United States from all around the globe. Knockoffs because some of them are touristic kind of constructions and others are honest to goodness immigrant communities that are still the way they were 150 years ago when they were they were settled. Just in my state, Washington, We've got Leavenworth, which is a famous little German thing, and it's kind of a touristy gimmick. But Paulsbo is originally a Norwegian town, and it's Norwegian to this day. And we have Linden up by the Canadian border, which is uh, very Dutch and was settled by Holland immigrants. What are your favorite slices of Europe in America? Well, one of my favorites is a city that I had gone to my entire life. My family um, was brought up right outside of it. And then after doing two years of Europe, came back to, and it just hit me like a ten of bricks, that this was a European city. And that is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is by far the most, for me, the most European city in the United States. And so then I started to, like, do a deep dive. Like, why is this? It was just a feeling I had. Like, wow, I just feel like I'm in Europe. And there were so many connections. Uh, One of the main architects was an emigrant from Lyon, France. 
he designed uh, the Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin Parkway, which is now where all the uh, museums are lined. And he designed that off of the Champs-Élysées. And along this beautiful roadway, parkway, where there are museums, there's the Rodin Museum. Mm -hmm. There's the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which has the largest collection of Renoir in the world. Incredible. And uh, there's Rittenhouse Square. There are all these, not just pockets, because I think, you know, there's places we'll talk about today that have pockets, but this is a city that is just so of France. And the best connection that I love about Philadelphia is that it is also, it has the most mural arts, I think, in the world. And its sister city is Lyon. So if you ever go to Lyon, France, and the Croix Rouge is where you see those phenomenal murals and that art that is available to all, and it's all over the city, that's what the two share. So the city uh, of brotherly love is a great city if you want that European and more specifically French, you know, kick. (laughs) You've identified actual European design elements that are are Mm -hmm. just, I mean, why couldn't a great European city designer uh, come in and help plan an American city and give it what works in Europe? I think Washington, D.C. has a lot of that. Sure. Yeah, Pierre L'Enfant, right? Uh, Wasn't he the architect of that? But yeah, so there's all these, and I don't think um, in France, they have the cheesesteak like Philly does, or the steak of fromage. Cheesesteak <laughs> <Yeah>, fromage. <laughs> <laughs> it's got its own food, but, you know, it's definitely one of these places that give you an exact feel through architecture, through art, and also public works that I think Europe is really well known for that also this American city has. And there's also the dimension that will be brought to a city by a big immigrant community. I'm fascinated when I travel around the country. I can tell what the immigrant history of a town is by how the people I talk to in my different speaking gigs advocate for me making a TV show. You know, when I go to mm-hmm. when I go to Cleveland, I always get people from Lithuania and, and and Estonia for some reason saying, why don't you ever go to the Baltics? Um, I hope we don't lose that. My grandpa used to hang out in Ballard in Seattle. He came over on the boat from Norway. It was a, a treasure for him to go to the Danish cafe and hang out there and, and have his Danish and, and speak uh, Scandinavian with his Scandinavian friends, you know, speak in his old Norwegian. And if you're an old timer, you'd joke about Ballard as the, you know, all the Norwegian jokes there or something. But today, if, if you went to Ballard, you wouldn't really recognize it. The jokes just don't work anymore because in the in one generation, things have changed quite a bit. Darn, I love a good Norwegian joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, be careful where you tread here. So you like Philadelphia from a European point of view. Uh, mm-hmm. What's another town that, that we should be mindful of when we get a chance to visit it that we can get a slice of Europe? Well, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people do big road trips. That's really um, popular for Americans. We love the road trip. And one of the best is the California Pacific Coast Highway. And there's a town in the Santa Barbara County called Solvang. Have you ever heard of Solvang? I have heard um, of Solvang. I've heard of Solvang in Norway. Okay. So this is actually a, a Danish. Um, it was founded by Danish immigrants huh. in like, you know, of course, 1910, not too long ago, but, right. you know, um, and they wanted their own place. So all the buildings are of Danish architecture. They even have windmills. They have uh, thatched roof. It goes a little towards that kitschy side that you uh-huh. were talking about, but 
this is still a Danish town. And, yeah. you know, you can get um, the Danish pancakes everywhere. You know, there's 40 shops. 20 of them sell the, what is it, Evelskiver? How do you pronounce that? Do you know? I don't know, but it sounds Evelskiver. You know, the yeah. little oh, round, yeah. puffy. Yeah. And But then, you know, if, if you're going through during their wonderful festivals, this is truly a Danish town. So, and it's just so charming because you're going through one, you know, beachside city after the next, and it's that California laid-back feel, and then boom, you're in Europe. Samantha Brown hosts Places to Love on public TV, and her website is samantha-brown.com. We're looking for bits of Europe and North America right now on Travel with Rick Steves. John in Trenton, New Jersey, emails us about a favorite stop of his that's only a couple hours' drive from where he lives. My favorite place for a feel of Great Britain is in Cape May, New Jersey. The homes are mostly Victorian. In November, they have a Sherlock Holmes weekend. In December, it's Charles Dickens Christmas. There's a B&B named the Queen Victoria with themed rooms such as the Crown Jewel, Westminster, Prince Albert, Windsor, Prince of Wales, and a whole bunch of royal names. And Cape May is a must-see America's original seaside resort. So there's a slice of Great Britain in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. You know, I've never been. I've only seen pictures. We've wanted to do an episode just based on that great city because people love it. And for good reason, just the way he explained it. Oh, I mean, yeah. It uh, Charles fun. Dickens. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Charles Dickens Christmas in Jersey. <laughs> I, you know, uh, for me, a slice of Britain up in the Northwest is Victoria, B.C. We've got a fast boat from Seattle that goes to Victoria every day. And it's just like dropping into England, jolly old England up there. And you go to the fancy hotel and you have your cream tea and, uh, mm. uh, you know, you got your double-decker buses. They still talk fondly about how the Queen visited. I wonder how they pronounce scone. Is it scone or is it scone? That, that's always the real test. Scone or scone. <laughs> it's long gone if it's on my plate. <laughs> that's, what, yeah, that's what someone in Ireland said. You know it's a scone when it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I, uh, let's see. We got good emails here. Uh, Barrett in Dallas uh, writes, and uh, he says, My wife and I cherish finding family-run restaurants in Europe that provide excellent food, pleasant, slow service, and beautiful hospitality. I can still remember our incredible waiter serenading us with funny Spanish sayings on a quiet plaza in Cordoba while his wife cooked. Or being jammed cheek to jowl in a hole in the wall in Rome for the best slice of pizza. These experiences are here in America, too. From an Italian family-run pizza joint to a husband and wife from Lebanon that run our favorite Mediterranean place. That's a very good tip from Barrett in Dallas that you can get that European ambience in uh, restaurants run by generally run by people from those countries. Yeah, and you know the best place to find first-generation Americans cooking their food? Strip mall restaurants. So I have always loved strip mall restaurants because it's where you will find those Lebanese restaurants. They're usually first-generation Americans. They can't afford the downtowns of the city. They're in these kind of offshoot places next to a bad video shop or, you know, whatever, a dollar store. And yet you get Cambodian food. You get Lebanese food. You get not just like uh, the overall Mexican. You get uh, Ecuadorian food. My husband and I will will always sort of like troll. (laughs) We'll just go in one uh, strip mall after the other to get this little pocket of vibrancy you had no idea existed. I love that, Sam. That is yeah. such a that's such a smart insight and it makes total sense because if it's a, a hardworking immigrant yeah. first generation immigrant family they don't have the capital to get a, a fancy restaurant location but they can offer an exciting service in a low rent place in a strip mall mm-hmm. this is travel with rick steves we're talking with samantha brown and her show is places to love on public television and she's got a new season out you can see it all over the united states and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com 
Eric in Boston emails us, and Eric writes, There are many cute restaurants, brasseries, and bistros to remind me of my travels in France. And uh, I'm all about a good croque madame. But when <laughs> I really need my France fix, I head to Canada. Montreal and Quebec City really feel French. I really encourage your listeners to take a quick, cheap trip north when France is calling. Sam, what about French culture in Montreal and Quebec City? Yeah, couldn't agree more. In fact, when I arrive in Montreal, which is an all-of-two-hour flight, I still feel jet lag. That's how much of Europe it really brings back. And Montreal is a beautiful city. Um, it also has the largest uh, public works art project in the world called Cité Memoir. Have you ever heard of this, No, Rick? I haven't. Uh, it's, it's an absolute must for everyone listening right now. With 80 projectors, they project the history of Montreal onto old buildings in the old city and through an app, you hear this wonderful story and you walk through alleyways that are completely lit up that are actually triggered by your own footsteps. All of a sudden, the projector comes on and it tells the story. It is unbelievable and unlike anything anyone has ever seen. And it's free, which I, I love. love. And that. that. What's it called yeah, again? That's Cité Memoir. It celebrates the history of Montreal. Yeah. We're just about out of time, Sam. We could talk forever, but I want to ask you, okay, I want to travel, but it's tough to leave the country right now. Give me one place and one experience here in the United States that would take me to, uh, you know, let me recreate that cultural experience of a foreign culture. What's your favorite? Ah, uh, Fredericksburg, Texas. Main Street right there is a wine garden operated by a family-owned winery, big picnic tables, children, families, uh, couples all out enjoying wine and cheese and meat, and it's a wonderful experience just yeah. right there on the Main Street. Sort of a European conviviality right there in Texas. Exactly, where everyone is invited, families as well. Ah, nice. Samantha Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations with uh, Places to Love, and uh, look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. Thank you, Rick. Such a pleasure talking to you. Adventures Just This Side of the Arctic Circle are next on Travel with Rick Steves with a guide to backcountry Iceland and, just ahead, a travel writer's nightmare cruise into the most dangerous section of the coast of Norway. Cheney Kwok's goal to view the northern lights turned into something much more dramatic to write about. It was supposed to be a cushy assignment. In 2019, a high-end travel magazine sent Cheney Kwok to see the northern lights in the fjords of the Norwegian Arctic on a cruise ship called the Viking Sky. But an intense storm, a winter storm, called a bomb cyclone, just off the notorious coast of northern Norway, knocked the power out and nearly ran the ship aground. For one long day and a longer night, it threatened to take its hundreds of passengers, staff and Cheney, into the deep. In his first book, Cheney, who writes for Condé Nast Traveler and the New York Times, details what the experience was like and what went through his head as, with his fellow passengers, he tossed all night in the dark on the icy seas of Norway. His book about the experience is called The Passenger. Cheney, thanks so much for surviving and for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rake. What an engrossing read. You, you went out to, to write an article about the Northern Lights and you ended up writing a book about almost running aground on a cruise ship. You know, life is full of surprises, which I think partly what The Passenger is about, because it starts off as kind of a suspenseful story about a cruise I happen to be on, but yeah. uh, turns into something other than that, I think, I'd like okay. to think. Yeah, well, I want to get to the storm in a minute, but first, I want to just talk about the cruise. What a cool thing to take a cruise in Norway. 
Tell us about the ship and tell us about the scenery you enjoyed, and knowing we'll get to the storm and the excitement later on, but <laughs> what was it before the storm hit? Well, I was on the Viking Sky, which is a fairly luxury uh, cruise ship. So it was, I was in really good company. Tell us about the scenery you enjoyed. Was it uh, jaw-dropping? <laughs> For sure. I mean, Norway, I, I don't think I need to say anything about it. The fjords just really do look like they do on TV. They're mm. almost geometric in some ways. And night or day, as you're traveling up and down the fjords, you're constantly taking pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, and images never do them justice. You know, every time I'm on a boat in the fjords, Cheney, I just feel like I'm on the deck with a bunch of sudden flash-in-the-pan nature lovers if they weren't already nature lovers. And everybody's just, we need bibs. We're just drooling with the amazing nature all around us and the cameras are clicking away. Did you spend a lot of time on the deck just marveling at black sort of cliffs coming right out of the water? You know, I would have, except it was really cold. Uh, even in March, I was wearing layers and layers but yeah, certainly I spent a lot of time outside just admiring the coastline. And what really struck me also is that as you go out into the countryside, you see a lot of lonely barns and uh, farmhouses mm. on islets. And you kind of wonder, what does it feel like to live in the middle of this ocean, really, surrounded by this raw nature, and you're never more than a few feet away from the ocean, and you're also never more than a couple of days or weeks away from a heavy, a really cold downpour. Yeah. Um, makes you really wonder, why did people travel so far up north to settle there? And many of these farms are so isolated, they're only accessible by the post boat that comes through. And I've been in some of these farms where you they actually put up a flag, and if the flag's up, the boat will stop at their little dock, and they will give it some mail or somebody will jump onto the boat or something like that. Of course, you were on a cruise ship, but a lot of people see it with the Hurtigruten, Hurtigruten, the, the actual post boat that goes up the coast of Norway. Now, you were bound for the Northern Lights. What did you hope to see and what did you hope to experience? I had never seen the Northern Lights, so I was just really excited to experience what that was about. But I was also anxious the whole time because as a freelancer, if you don't have the story, then you don't really get paid. Yeah. Um, and night after night, I kept looking for the Northern Lights. And in fact, actually, one day, one night, I woke up with the TV set on because the Viking cruise lets you watch uh, from the bridge, you know, what the captain's watching. Yeah. And I saw these green lights. So I just sprang out of bed, ran upstairs, and I was up on the deck by myself and I circled around and around, and I just didn't see anything. Ah, I was in Iceland, and it's the same sort of frustration. People go to great expense and, and, and spend a lot of time trying to see the northern lights. And if you do see it, it's, it's a great thing. It's kind of like whale watching. Mm -hmm. You never saw the northern lights then? Well, I did, actually. So funny thing is that I went back into my room and I called the reception, and the person said, oh, it's just the, the infrared camera. It's what you saw isn't real. It's just green all the time. It's very disappointed. Hmm. But a few days later, I actually went on an excursion at night. And after a couple of hours of waiting, I finally got to see the Northern Lights. And I have to say, cruises really prepare you for, uh, for the Northern Lights experience because a lot of cruising is about waiting uh, you wait to yeah. get on the boat. You wait to get off the ship. There's a lot of waiting involved. So by then, I was mm -hmm. really well trained for that. And so after hours of shivering, I finally got to see the Northern Lights. And I have to say, it was a little different. 
like not quite worth all the hoopla? Yeah, exactly. I <laughs> thought it was going to be like a shimmery curtain of spiritual experience, and it was more like almost like a neon sign that flickered on yeah. and off. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it was still really beautiful. Yeah. And I suppose it, it varies depending on the strength of the atmospheric conditions and so on. So you could probably see a, a little northern lights or a magnificent northern lights. But uh, let's talk about, okay, so you're up there to do all of that, and then suddenly the whole focus of the experience changes, and uh, you start thinking actually not about seeing the northern lights, about just getting through the night. What happened? Tell us about this storm. So as I was experiencing the northern lights and enjoying my all-night, all-you-can-eat experience and all that, there was actually a storm brewing, and I actually read a Washington Post article about that, that... There was an unusual, very low pressure happening somewhere between uh, Norway and Iceland, and they anticipated that there was going to be a, a severe storm. They just didn't know when, and I'm so glad that I didn't know because I was really having a good time. March 23rd, we were sailing down Hustavika, which is apparently a very notorious stretch of the Norwegian coastline. Because unlike the fjords, this is actually out in the open ocean. Okay. And there aren't any islands to slow down the ocean. Exposed. So we were... <laughs> it's not a good place to be when there's a storm brewing. Mm-hmm. We had skipped one port call the day before because the sea was really rough. And at some point, uh, we started noticing that things were a little amiss. Like uh, the the indoor swimming pool had kind of turned into like this geyser almost because we were moving around so much. And at some point, we started listing really badly. And at 2 p.m., the ship suffered a catastrophic engine failure, which meant that all four of the engines shut down. And we were basically at the mercy of the ocean. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the general emergency signal once again. You wrote in the book, which is just a fun read, about just the noise of the storm. I mean, it just, you must have felt small and the thunderous howling of the wind. What was it like? It was really haunting. And it's also really surreal because you're in a very artificial bubble. You know, a cruise ship is a floating city. So you're in this bubble in the middle of all the natural elements and you're hearing the kitchen practically breaking down right above you. People are screaming everywhere. But the scariest part, Rick, was when we lost the electricity and everything turned really quiet. The AC stopped working, the speaker stopped working, the TV went out, and just for that split second, that eerie quiet was the scariest part because we were listing as if we were in a falling building. And then the speaker came back on. There are eight beeps uh, indicating that we had to evacuate. And uh, people started screaming again. And then on it went. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cheney Kwok. And he writes for the Condé Nast Traveler and for New York Times. And right now he's sharing the story of uh, the toughest assignment of his life. He was on a cruise ship. And he went to write about the Northern Lights. But then a freak storm hit the Norwegian Arctic, and his ship nearly ran aground. His book is called The Passenger, and his website is chaneyquak.com. That's spelled C-H-A-N-E-Y-K-W-A-K. So, Cheney, you've got this uh, storm happening. You've got the captain trying to keep people calm. 
talk about the chaos and the confusion. Uh, thank goodness, I guess the lights came on, but uh, you were like stranded out there and you didn't know if you're going to run aground. How did 1,900 uh, passengers uh, react? Was everybody orderly or was it sort of uh, people were out in the aisles just saying their last prayers? Uh, yeah, this goes back to what I was mentioning before, which is that the cruise attracts a certain kind of people, right? PBS watching, pledge drive, tolerating kind of people. Everybody was so civil. So in fact, at some point, uh, a wave hit us so hard that uh, it blew open the door and started sloshing, uh, pouring in. And we just sat there calmly as the cold Atlantic water sloshed about. There are people who were drenched from head to toe, but mm. there was no trampling or uh, <laughs> panicking outwardly mm. anyway. But I also, you know, before I evacuated, I put my passport in my underwear, actually, because I figured if I washed up ashore somewhere, at least I'd like my parents to know. I wanted my body to be ad- identified. Oh. So I was sort of mentally prepared, but somehow calm at the same time. So let me understand better the, the chronology, because 2 o'clock the storm sure. hit, but you spent, and then you lost the power, but the power came back on. What was the, mm-hmm. the night like? Because you had to suffer through this scary experience through the night. Right. So at 2 p.m., we lost the power. We evacuated. We were all in one place together, or rather two places. All the passengers were divided into two separate areas. And I happened to be in the restaurant, which then got hit by this monster wave. So we had to evacuate a lot again um, because there was water in there. Uh, we went into the atrium and uh, we spent the night there. You know, it wasn't that we were constantly listing and the ship wasn't struggling the whole time because at some point one of the engines started working and then... So you're listing. The, That's said, the, the listing means you're tilting to the side, right? And all the, That's right. the furniture yep. has collapsed to one side and, and the, anything mm-hmm. that's sitting not tied down on a table has slipped to the edge. Is, the, is it that kind of listing? That's right. Uh, it was so bad that the baby grand piano uh, flipped upside down. That's so that listing. Gives you an idea. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I took pictures. I thought this couldn't be because everything's bolted down on a cruise ship. Yeah. But here we were. Cheney Quox telling us about his toughest travel writing assignment when the cruise ship he was on lost power in a freak winter storm off a particularly treacherous stretch of the Norwegian coast in March of 2019. The MV Viking Sky lost power and nearly ran into the rocky coast, which could have turned into a titanic-sized disaster. Cheney recounts the experience in his book called The Passenger, how a travel writer learned to love cruises and other lies from a sinking ship. His website is cheneyquak.com. That's spelled K-W-A-K. Uh, we spent the night inside the atrium, and that's where the passenger takes place for the most part. And I was more interested at that point in the anthropological aspect of the experience. All the passengers were kind of divided into separate groups, and each group had a person, a crew member looking after us. Mm-hmm. Ours was a Welsh entertainer, a singer who then had to put on a very different hat and uh, become our kindergarten teacher slash concierge slash, oh, just everything, nurse. 
it wasn't every, really every man and every woman for themselves. They still had the, the crew and the staff and even the entertainers were still working, even though this was oh, yeah. a, a life-or-death crisis. So the passengers were still being taken care of by the crew, even during this chaotic and frightening time. Absolutely. Once the chaos died down a little bit, because yeah. one of the engines started working, then two of them, but we weren't still moving fast enough to outrun the storm or return to land. So we were actually constantly surrounded by tugboats that couldn't connect to us. There are helicopters evacuating passengers, 20, 25 people at a time, which would have taken a couple of days, really. So they were preparing for the worst, but inside the ship, there was order. And uh, it was almost like a mass choreography hmm. of this impeccable, uh, unspoken social order being reinforced. Were people getting seasick with all of the listing and the, and the howling of the wind? I was told that at first, actually, uh, some of the passengers who came back from the bathroom said, oh, you don't want to go in there now. That was not the case by the time I got to go there. Okay, well, I'd say um, the crew gets, the in, crew gets good, good marks for handling this disaster. I, it was probably the first uh, such storm that the crew had ever had to work in. Yeah, to this, uh, probably to this magnitude. And, uh, you know, the crew members really were incredible, as were the rescue workers and the volunteers. Because um, Norway stepped right up, together. didn't they? Apparently you were impressed by how Norway seemed to handle the challenge. I mean, you have to also understand, we were in a pretty rural area, mm -hmm. and everybody just came out to volunteer for the Red Cross and, and help out people. But here's the thing, Rick. You know, I'm aware that hundreds of people worked hard overnight, all night, to make sure that everybody was safe. There was helicopter evacuation happening throughout the night. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if a current had pushed us in one direction rather than another, or if there had been... A boulder in the wrong place, this could have played out in a very, very different way. And that's what really overwhelms me. And in part, that's what the passenger is about, that kind of chance or serendipity of life. It changes your perspective. And then, so how did it all finish off? How does the story end for the passengers and for well, you? It becomes rather uneventful throughout the night because, you know, the storm isn't as bad. And you think you're okay, you're in the clear, and then all of a sudden you get broadsided by a wave. You see a champagne bottle just fly across the room like an arrow, and you go, oh, okay, maybe we're not <laughs> out of the, woods the clear yet. yet. Out of the storm yet. Yeah. In the morning, uh, one of the tugboats connects to the cruise ship because they had been shadowing us for you know, all night. And then at some point, they were able to connect to us. And I was very fortunate to track down one of the tugboat uh, captains and interview him. And he gave me some really interesting perspectives as well. Uh, the passenger is a deeply personal story, but I do incorporate my interviews with a rescue diver and a helicopter captain as well as a tugboat captain. And he said that in his career, he had been uh, working since he was 15, uh, working on various boats and ships. He had never seen waves like that before. And when he was sailing out with uh, 75 knot uh, winds on his uh, monitor, he thought, this is crazy. Mm. And then he said, you know, what are you going to do when there's a rescue waiting to happen? Then you have to do it. Mm. And I think that kind of humanity is really, really moving. There was another ship that responded to our mayday. Uh, it was a freight ship, and they unfortunately suffered an engine failure as well, and all nine crew members had to jump into the ocean in order to be rescued. 
they're all safe, by the way, mm -hmm. happy ending. But uh, a helicopter had to go mm. and fish them all out. Um, wow. Well, you had an amazing experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Cheney Kwok, and he's survived a near a catastrophe on a cruise ship, and he's written about it. Uh, his book is called The Passenger. Cheney, thanks for joining us. And uh, final thought, what's the next cruise you're going to take? What's your approach to cruising after this experience? <laughs> You know, whether I take a cruise or not, I think the biggest lesson from this experience is that when you get a second chance, you got to be grateful for it and live to your fullest and appreciate those human connections that you get to make. Mm. It sounds like that is a beautiful souvenir from this, from this an amazing experience you had. Cheney Clark, the book is The Passenger. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Before the pandemic, Iceland reached new heights in tourism popularity, often as a popular diversion on those long flights across the Atlantic. Today, Iceland is one of the first European nations to figure out how to welcome tourists back after the global border closures. Up next, let's get ready to explore the mythic natural beauty of backcountry Iceland. Jorik Harker guides us next at 877-333-RICK. Iceland is a geothermal wonderland, benefiting from the clash of tectonic plates between North America and Europe. It soared in popularity in recent years and gives you a chance to see Mother Nature at work in new lava fissures, glaciers on the move, and a windswept landscape that just might get you to believe in elves. Tour guide Yorick Harker lives in one of England's most scenic counties in the Lake District but he's become acquainted with the backcountry of Iceland as his favorite place to really escape into nature under the midnight sun. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves with tips for enjoying the wilds of Iceland. By the way, our interview was recorded shortly before the pandemic began. Hi, thanks so much. So when you think about Iceland, you think about it's so trendy, but you're really focusing on something far away from the crowds. Tell us about that other side of Iceland. Uh, I've been traveling there for... 20 years, and it used to be just 30,000 people per year would visit. Now I think 2 million. Once I finish guiding, I will admit I have to escape and just hit the wilderness. Uh, as a European, for me, it's our wilderness. I know America, Canada, it's a different scale. One minute, you're in Reykjavik, ultra-modern city. Half an hour, you've left the city, you've maybe just come from the Apple store, and then half an hour, you're on the moon in a, in a desert, in a black sand desert. And uh -huh. that, to me, I mean... It's like two different worlds. So yeah. you're saying there's, it used to be 30,000 30, people yeah, a year. Sure. Now a couple million people visit Iceland. For sure. Now what's the, I mean, the population of Iceland is remarkably small. Yes. It's about 360,000. Uh, there's been a large influx of people from Europe working there in recent years. About 330,000 is the population of the so Icelanders. So well under half a million Icelanders. Oh, yeah. And so many, 270,000 or so in this small corner around Reykjavik. Between the airport and Reykjavik. And correct, correct, yeah. yeah. All right. So so really, it's, it's remarkably small, and it doesn't have much of an infrastructure. There's one main road around the island. Correct. There's one big correct. city, and correct. that's really it. It really is. And we all go to the famous Blue Lagoon, and we all go on the Golden Circle, and we all, you know, see the big Lutheran church in Reykjavik, and that's all great. But you, as a guide, when you're on your own, you just make for the just go. vast... Is just it the, go. Is it mostly the interior? Yeah, they're known as the highlands, the central highlands. Right. But it's not high mountains, because geologically, the island is... It's separating. It's it's opening. So, 
It's a gentle plateau, but it's unique in that you have these amazing volcanoes, but with glaciers on top. And the island is like there's one paved road that circles the island. Just give me the, the lay of the, the land from a pavement point of view. What is there? Sure. You have, um, it's correct, it's a, a circle. If we're ignoring this bit that stems out at the top, the northwest fjord, so if you ignore that, it is like a circle. It's the road one. Uh, it's completed only in 1974. Some parts are still um, mud roads, even on the road one. Huh. And then outside of that, we tend to call them uh, mountain roads. It's got an F prefix. F roads. Yeah, And these F-roads. are generally gravel, unpaved. Correct. They're uh, unpaved. They're starting to do more and more as the demand for tourism uh, mm-hmm. grows. Now tourism's the number one industry. You know, what I was struck by, York is driving on Highway 1, or Road 1, Yeah. Every time you did a little turnoff, there's a pull-off, uh, a little rest area where you have a beautiful map and a very detailed map of what are, where are the farms and where are the restaurants and, and where are the sites on this little road that branches off the big circle road. So you really sort of know what your options are as soon as you leave that Highway 1. I've always found that the Icelanders do things very well with detail. And one thing I would really, really stress, before you do go out, uh, use the website, the traffic website. Is that the safe.is? That's a good one there. You can log your details and it will take your position. It will hold five positions in the computer. So that if anything happens, then the rescue team, you just press one button as an app and they will know your GPS system. But it's called um, road.is. So I, IS yeah. for Iceland. Correct. It breaks the country up, I think, into nine divisions and it will give you so much information. The current uh, weather, it will give you how many people have been on that road in 24 hours, in the last hour. Uh, and the most important thing for me in Iceland, um, it's the wind. It's obviously the name, ice, people think cold. Average temperatures aren't too bad, especially on the south coast, close to the ocean. The wind is the killer. So on the road, you will obviously, as you said, get those information signs, you'll get wind speed. And in, it's gonna be in meters per second. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jorik Harker. And Jorik is a guide in Iceland, and his passion is getting away from the people into the interior of that remote and just jaw-droppingly beautiful island. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Lisa from Glenview, Illinois, emailed us, and Lisa writes, We were in Iceland in January, and the wind gusts were over 90 miles an hour, resulting in cancellations of many of our excursions. Uh, They were there in January. Is is wind more of a problem in the winter, or is it just something all year long? I would say uh, all year long. More so it's happening, obviously, with the changes in in the globe. May, they're starting to get a lot of more anticyclones, and it is a problem. It doesn't snow so much, but one big difficulty whilst traveling is the spin drift. Because there are so few trees, very few fences, no stone walls really, and so the wind picks up that snow, and whilst you're driving, it's very disorientating. You know, you've mentioned the wind, York, and this is so interesting because when I landed in, in uh, Iceland last time, at the airport they said, um, and we highly recommend sand damage insurance on your car. And I thought, well, what's that? I just thought they were trying to you know, hit me up with some bogus extra expense, but no, you get sandstorms where it can ruin the surface of the car, and if you don't have insurance, it can be expensive. Yes, when you get to the airport, sometimes you think, it's an expensive country, trying to minimize the costs. If you go to the northwest, not a big problem. But if you're on the south coast, that's the sand area. Yeah. And I would kind of advise it because I have been caught in a sandstorm and it's 
at first. Because you might leave your car at the ferry dock there to go to the Westman Islands, come back two days later, and your car is a mess. amazing. And in fact, I was on the Westman Islands, and everybody says, watch out for nature. Iceland's serious. You can really hurt yourself. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was walking on this breakwater, uh-huh. you know, getting pictures of the harbor. It was so beautiful. The light is so beautiful. And I'm walking on these giant rocks on a breakwater. I nearly got blown right into the sea. A gust came up. And, you know, I can hold my own. Yes. And uh, I've never had that experience before, but it happened in Iceland. So I guess you hear a lot of people that really know nature say, take the safety warnings seriously. Respect that land. It will teach you a lesson and it won't take you prisoner. It'll just flick you off the map. I've learned the hard way a lot in Iceland. It's taught me a lot of lessons. And uh, mm. the simple one, always listen to the locals. They're very friendly. They're very approachable. Their English standard is, I'm afraid, better than mine. <laughs> they have a great humor. And just listen to the locals. It's a thing I've learned. And unfortunately, a lot of new tourists to the country don't. And then there are those websites, and people will find them when they're driving. But you see these road safety stops everywhere, and you see references to to websites that tell you what's the weather and what to be careful of and so on. Take care of that. Tour guide and outdoorsman Jorik Harker is helping us plan for a socially distant foray into the interior of Iceland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Just a reminder that today's interview with Yorick was recorded a few weeks before the global pandemic shutdowns got underway. You can find a link to the latest COVID requirements for visiting Iceland with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Nicole's on the line from Victoria, British Columbia, with a question about wilderness sports in Iceland. Hey, Nicole. Yes, I'm, I'm interested in exploring Iceland someday, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts on um, renting equipment and gear once we're there, or is it always better to bring our own from home? So I guess the big question is, if you're going to do the typical tourist stuff, you'll have, you know, the big city stuff that you'd expect to have. But with York, we're talking about getting off into the countryside. And that's a great question, York. Uh, there's a company that I use, and very nice people. It's based in the center of Reykjavik, and in a very typical Icelandic uh, fashion, very honest system. So you can turn up, especially uh, in the off-season. They will give you a pin code, and you get to that door, you just put it in, and all the kit will be in there. And it'll be your name, your number. And if you, for example, I I always find it very difficult when you've landed, you might have a stove. You can't travel with gas, flammable objects in your bag. It's always a hard thing to get hold of. So they will have gas for you there, uh, camping gas. They'll have water, they'll have sleeping bags, tents, poles, you name it. And also, which is very good, they'll have um, like the spot devices, so GPS if, uh, for rescue. So let me understand this, York. Uh, you mean it's systems. a it's an s- online service and you book it in advance? Yes. You pay for it? Yes. And they give you a, a PIN code or whatever. When you get there, you go to a depot where your gear is waiting for you. That's right. That's out of season. If not, uh, they have a shop upstairs from there. In Reykjavik. Right in the downtown. And they're a very good, uh, very nice system. Very what, nice and what use. company is that? It's just called uh, Camping Iceland. Camping Iceland. Um, yeah. And what if you're if you're going off into the countryside, you've got your car, would most people then rent gear like that or what would you advise? Do you normally end up uh, with a tent and a sleeping bag or do you stay in guest houses and on farms and then hike from there? I'm sorry, I'm a hobbit. I'm happy to sleep in a truck or in a snow cave. But uh, if you want some mod cons, you can take a tent, you can get air mattresses. You there's, sleep in a snow cave, unlike softies like me who prefer a tent. Okay. <laughs> but there's some amazing guest houses. There's the very good uh, association of mountain huts. Uh, again, an honesty system. There'll be kitchens there. The door is open. 
Some of them are haunted because this is Iceland and, uh, you know, you always have the mysticism, the, the spiritual side. Others, they're part of an association in town. You'll book that in advance. They'll give you the key. You go along and you open it up and yeah, that's maybe pretty cool. I've, I've thought about this, you know, a decade ago or whatever, they would have tens of thousands of visitors and now they have millions of visitors. Yeah. And what they've done, I've noticed, is every farm in the countryside, now they've got more tourists than cows yes. in the barn. And yeah, just it's simple more, little, it's more profitable small little, you know, dorms or whatever, or huts. And it's the honor system. It's yes. sleek. It's minimal. It's plenty comfortable. Yes. And you're immersed in the wonder, the natural wonder of Iceland. Nicole, thanks for your call. That's great. Thanks for the info. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Yorick Harker. Yorick, describe for us the, the appeal for you to be in the middle of Iceland. What is it like to venture away from the people, away from the paved roads... What's the attraction? What's the reward? I think it's the way that the elements change so quickly. I travel there so many times and people say, why are you taking photographs? I'm like, because it's different again today. The shapes. So when I first went in my mind, I saw everything scientifically and uh, not as a trained geologist by any means, but through the geology. And people would talk about the folklore and the spiritual side and I would be like, you're talking rubbish, it's ridiculous. After a while, you spend time out there. It doesn't get dark. The shadows change very slowly. The light changes. The love has been eroded in such a way by the wind. You do start to see shapes. I know essentially how it was made by geology. But once you're standing there on your own and it's two o'clock in the morning and it's this twilight, this between dusk and and the morning, you start to see those shapes, and you're like, wait a minute, what did I just see there, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm not going down that avenue, but I'm afraid you will. It's, it's a place that just gets inside of, of all groups that I take, of all ages. I think that's why I love it. It's just a really special place in that regard. It just sweeps you away. Yeah, and I'm torn, I really have to say. My job, our lives have been tourism. You know, we guide, we, we want people to go to a place. There's two million people there now. Everyone wants to, Iceland's the hot topic. So some of it hurts me, but some of it I think, well, the country is doing well. It's giving a lot of jobs. Yeah. Great for the economy. The thing that hurts me the most is the way that it's changing pollution-wise, ecologically, people that don't respect. Because Iceland, Scandinavians, they don't put up warning signs. So you don't see safety signs. You don't see safety ropes. If you do, it's maybe a short, just six inches off the ground. They're easy to step over. So I kind of, it hurts inside when I see the, the trash, the rubbish. Mm-hmm. I love the national parts of America. It's a huge draw for me, and I love how they're managed. I think Iceland has to catch up. It's learning lessons, you know, the management of simple things, toilets, toilet waste, trash, mm-hmm. car parks, shops, you know, the, these great waterfalls. Um, I've noticed that in just the space of five years. Yeah. I, went, I went to the famous Completely. waterfalls five years Completely. ago, and they were just like, pull off the road, go there, That's it's it. all yours. That's it. Now there's a paid parking lot, there's a little restaurant, That's there's it. big crowds, there's yeah. ropes that keep people back, yeah. and... Uh, and every year, several tourists die. Yeah. They don't read the morning, and they do their selfie, and a gust of wind comes, and their history. Yeah. So just in a nutshell, I would just say, love the place, enjoy it, but just respect it, and respect the people. I mean, imagine any other country that had six times their population visiting Six in a year. times I mean, their think population, of it, you know, that's it, what it is. Yeah, 300,000 people. Imagine that many people to the States, to right. Yosemite. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Yorick Harker, and Yorick Paige from Buffalo in Wyoming has just emailed us, and she says she'd like to have a little more active part of her three-day layover in, in Iceland than rather than just seeing Reykjavik and going on a road trip. 
So, you know, a lot of people just have two or three days. They're going to see Reykjavik. They're going to go to one of the hot springs or something. But there is an option not to be, you know, fanatic like you living in an ice cave in the middle of Iceland, <laughs> but just to venture away from the paved road and have an adventure, you'd probably end up paying somebody to take you on a four-wheeler. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend for one unforgettable day to get really into nature? Yep. It's, uh, it's possible. With somebody who's a normal tourist and not oh, really? a, not an outdoor expert no, like no, you. No, it's absolutely fine, and it's a country that lends itself very much to that. And I would also stress you don't need to go to the Northwest Highlands. You don't need to go to the far northeast. Actually, one of my favorite areas, it's the Reynes Peninsula. So mm-hmm. you're going to land, if you're coming by plane, which most people are, you're going to land at Keflavik. Right. And that's on this far edge of the peninsula. And, and, and the airport is on the peninsula. What's the name of the peninsula? Uh, Reynes. Reynes. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So and the, it's like... Um, the smoky it, it, peninsula. It is, okay, that means smoky in Icelandic because driving around there, it's just like a lunar landscape of lava. Yes. Around that area, it is a geothermal park, a UNESCO site. Just 40 kilometers from the main city. So you, you can find lots of hotels between those two areas. And there's definitely companies who will go quad biking. Mm-hmm. Um, 100,000 or so, almost 100,000 horses in Iceland. It's a massive part of their culture. Three horses for every... Yeah. I see. No, yeah, yeah, it's almost one to three. One to three, and, yeah. um, So there's some great trekking on the peninsula, either through the lava fields or uh, on the beaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good established companies. They will provide you again with the equipment. In fact, if you're into the horse riding, don't bring your own equipment. You're not allowed to use it. Uh, so there's there's some treks. And also, if you want to go by car, um, Arctic Trucks, very big company there. They will uh, modify, say, like Toyota Hiluxes, and they will take you just into the interior, which isn't too far to get to. You can go into the... So these are the all-terrain vehicles that have those snorkels that go up? Completely. On the front, you've got these snorkels going up so they can uh, basically go through rivers and not have the the engine drowned? Correct. Most of the roads in the interior, they're gravel and there's very few bridges. That in itself is quite an experience. That's the one day I had on the interior that was wonderful. It's probably one country that, that merits, if you just are, you know, a a lightweight coming in for a couple of days to hire somebody who's got the gear, got the expertise and give you that Icelandic experience. I'm not going to deny it. It's a very expensive country, but I've always found the value is very good Uh and they're very, very flexible. So if the weather is bad, if things are cancelled, they'll very often try and give you another time slot. They'll give you a voucher if you're going to come back. And if you want to go just a little further, go up to the Snæfells Peninsula. That's one of my favorites. Snæfells Peninsula. Yes. Um, York, it's been great talking to you. We're out of time. I'd like you just to take us to your f- most dramatic spot for my one moment to appreciate the natural, solitary wonder of Iceland. Where would I be? What would I experience? Ah, uh, yeah. Schulzvern, that's where he had the center of the earth. Just a big, classic, white lump, big volcano, ice on top, the wind... You're looking out at the ocean, nothing between you and Antarctica, if you go in a straight line. It's just the silence, the shapes, the birds, um, and just the, the spiritual feel to it. I was going to almost go to that spiritual thing. It's, it is I'm kind trying of to spiritual. avoid it, aren't I? Ah, I know. <laughs> you're not a very spiritual guy, but you can't help it when you're in a spot like that. <laughs> I cannot. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It totally is. All right. It gives me chills. Yorick Harker, that's an inspiration. Thank you very much for joining <laughs> us, and you got us thinking about Iceland. <laughs> Thanks so much.
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kazmora Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had studio help this week from the Radio Foundation in New York and the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Find out when other radio stations air travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.